You have questions? We have answers. We're two Southern moms on the backside of raising kids. And we have some things to say. We've lived life, made mistakes, and learned some lessons. Join us for answers to the questions you, you just, just want to ask your mom. mom. Welcome to another Just Ask Your Mom podcast. I'm Bonnie Blaylock. And I'm Renee Sproles. This is going to be part two of our series on kids and technology. And on this podcast today, we are going to talk about, we're going to focus on focus. Let's focus on focus, Bonnie. <laughs> right. Well, on our last episode, we talked about Dr. Nicholas Cardaris's book, Glow Kids. And he outlined the evidence piling up about the effect of unrestrained use of technology, especially where kids are concerned. But in this episode, we're going to tackle it from kind of a different angle, paying attention and focus in particular. And this is going to be based on the heavily researched book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again by Johan Hari. So I'm excited about this conversation. Oh my gosh, I've read this book and thought, this is so me. <laughs> So my toes got stepped on all over the place, but it also gave me some revelations. So yeah, I'm really excited to to just learn from this conversation and just revisit kind of what's going on in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, so how often would you guess an average college student can pay attention to anything? College Bonnie? student? Well, toddlers don't pay attention to anything. Like they have no attention span. But a college student, they're pretty focused. Right. I mean, if you they study, I, I, I have the answer over here. But if you just asked me, I would have said like 45 minutes, yeah. 50 minutes, um, which having taught a study skills course was the average amount of time we would recommend you study before taking like a five to 10 minute break to give your brain was a break. 45 minutes, it was 45 minutes. OK, you know, you were supposed to pay attention to yourself. Some people can push it to like an hour, but there were studies that showed like really after about an hour, your effectiveness goes down. You, okay. need, a, you need a little brain break. So I would have guessed that number, but students on average in college are switching tasks every 65 seconds. Mm, okay. So they're <laughs> not paying very seconds. good attention. So that means that the immediate amount of time that they focus on anything was a whopping 19 seconds. Oh, 45 minutes. You were, you were generous. I, I was way, way off. And adults are not much better. Studies show we can make it a whopping three minutes before switching tasks. Yes. Um, so like if you're focusing on something and you get interrupted, think about that in your day. You're trying to make dinner. Read, read a recipe. That's all my life was with young children. <laughs> of course it that's is. That's all it was. Do you ever get interrupted? You can't even go to the bathroom for crying out loud without <laughs> getting interrupted. But if you if you get interrupted, it's going to take you an average of 23 minutes to get back to that same state of focus. And workers in the United States report that they mostly never get an uninterrupted hour. So if you're a parent who stays at home to raise your kids, obviously, like we just said, Ugh. you know, you feel the pain, right? <laughs> and if you're a parent trying to work from home with your kids at home, well, God help you. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. I mean, we feel this. Absolutely. We're in our early 50s, and we talk about this all the time. I mean, I was texting you this morning. No, what time are we meeting? I know. All right, wait, I have a chiropractor appointment. Was I supposed to cancel that? I forgot to write that down. <laughs> what were we? What did we say we were talking about? All the time. Oh. Yes, I've had this version of the conversation with all of my friends. I used to sit um, 
And I've noticed this, particularly in the past few years, I used to be able to sit and read a book zoned out, like nothing in the environment would bother me. I would just zone into my story and read for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, now I can't make it through a whole chapter. I like I have to go back and reread stuff constantly because I'm I can't focus. And it, okay, and it can't just be age. I well, just, that's I highly, what I was blaming it on. I highly doubt that it's just age. I mean, I do think some of it is, mm-hmm. but. I agree with you. I I have noticed that even in the middle of a chapter, I'm like, okay, what's next? What's what am I doing next? Right. And it's like, no, 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 return. To, you haven't done the chapter. You haven't finished the chapter yet. Right. So, and, and the harder the reading is, or the deeper the reading uh, is, the worse that is. Yeah, the brain fatigue is is real. Yeah, it really is. Um. So Dr. Joel Nig one of the leading experts in children's attention problems says our culture may be attentionally pathogenic an environment where sustained and deep focus is extremely difficult and mm-hmm. you have to swim upstream to get it he says it's through no fault of our own Whew. yeah thank you thank you <laughs> you are released <laughs> that there never seems to be enough stillness for us to stop and think yeah so that's our problem it's just our culture that's making us more and more scattered and less and less focused. So they looked at combing through years now of data that they now have from Twitter, Google, and even trending book topics. They can go back before the internet, as far back as the 1880s. These scientists in Denmark have shown that over the years, topics have tended to reach popularity faster and drop off faster. So we can't just say that it's only technology that has done this. It's basically the rate of information in general. So if you think about back when the Chicago fire happened, for example, okay, it happened in Chicago and you're living in, I don't know, Florida. Well, you're not going to hear about that unless it gets reported in the newspaper or the journalist has to be there and then it gets printed and then it gets distributed to you all the way down in Florida. It's going to take several days before you know that there was a fire in Chicago. Now think about today's war on the Ukraine. How much have you heard about that in the past week? Right. right. I mean, constant news stories pop up on my phone screen. Right. So the rate of information, all the information is still there. It's just the rate and the quickness of how we get it has skyrocketed. Uh, Back when BlackBerry, remember that? Oh, yeah. I never had one. (laughs) I didn't either. I wasn't that cool. (laughs) Back when the BlackBerry was originally invented, its original slogan was, anything worth doing is worth doing faster. You buy that? You believe no, that? No, no, I do not. <laughs> I mean, is fast food better Ugh. than slow food? No. How fast about fast sex? sex? Okay, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not. <sighs> How long is this going to take? Okay, fast conversations? Not the good ones. No. So, no. speed of information might feel good and modern and like you're up to date and you're hip and you're in the loop, but when we have speed, we sacrifice depth and reflection. So we're choosing an easy thing instead of an important thing. Yeah, you're, you know, food is my love. I love to cook and I, and I um, remember reading, so I read about it and I watch yeah. videos about it. And I remember um, a young woman was talking to her grandmother and she was using like probably like a Cuisinart or something to like her chopper onions faster and her carrots faster and her grandmother was like why are you doing that and she's like well it's just faster and she's like faster 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 like you always just want to do something faster for what to mm. get to what she's like there's there's something contemplative and beautiful about chopping the onion chopping the carrot I thought oh she's so right and that is that some is of my true. most contemplative times 
is when I just do the methodical kneading the bread. Yes. 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 It, re- it really is true. It's and it is literally a time when I reflect. I might pray for people mm-hmm. who come to mind when I'm cooking or the people I'm cooking for. Yeah. Um. It, yeah. Faster is, is definitely not better necessarily. I love that example. Um. So when we get our news from social media, thinking about Ukraine in particular, because it's on my mind this week, that's one way to get your information. Or what if I went and read a book on the history of Ukraine and got an in-depth look at the history of it and the people there and the culture? I think I would have a much more, um, a much broader, a much greater understanding of the situation over there. And and by the way, this is what humans tend to do in almost every area of our life. We choose the easy thing instead of the important thing from our relationships to achieving our goals. So I think this is something that we just sort of naturally have to struggle against (laughs) if we want to be excellent in any area. I agree. I I mean, the urgent, I mean, that's why I go to it is because it feels urgent. Right. And so just stopping for just a few seconds and recognizing, okay, that is urgent. And sometimes it's easy. And as a person who loves to check a box or scratch an item off my list, I am drawn to the quick and easy thing to do mm-hmm. because it feels like I've accomplished. Efficiency. Yeah. It's my favorite word. <laughs> yeah. My personality loves that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's personally something that I notice I have to stop and pause. And some days I don't. Some days I just jump from the next to the next thing to the next thing to the next right. thing. I think, though in the past several years since the kids have gone, which is significant since this is a mom podcast, mm-hmm. um, I really have gone back to on purpose, slowing down, like you said, chopping the carrots, mm-hmm. finding things that I can just go sit outside and listen to the birds sing and nothing else, mm-hmm. not my phone, nothing else for you know a solid five minutes. It really does help. It calms my spirit. It focuses me deeper. It gives me greater joy than chasing the urgent was it your husband who told us one time that they it was um an experiment or exercise i guess not an experiment that they did in the prisons where they took the prisoners and they had this group session time and they took them in like a big gymnasium type of room and they put them on mats and it was um they just were gonna have like five minutes of quiet contemplation like you don't get that in prison? I mean, you so, sit in 12 by 12. It's noisy. Room. It's always noisy. Uh, yeah. And there's um, the women I've talked to who've been in jail or prison say a lot of times they don't turn the lights off. Oh. But from like midnight to 4 a.m., almost like a technique to pe- keep people torture. disoriented right. and subdued. And so they took them in. It's a quiet, dark room. They let them five minutes of quiet. And the um, the men started to break out into wailing and crying weeping because they were kind of had a, a moment to reflect on wow, what they done that's why they were there and i think a lot of us stay busy because we don't we don't really want to sit and think about what's inside of us what we've done mm-hmm. i know i know i personally don't oh. I, it makes me wriggle no it's uncomfortable it, it's very uncomfortable to mm-hmm. just sit in the quiet um and if you're a Christian, in terms of prayer, just to sit and listen. But listen, such a, well, yeah, it's like spiritual discipline, quiet, silence. Silence, mm-hmm. and just let God bring something up. Oh, lack of noise. It's, yeah. It's slightly terrifying at times. Which, which yeah. Which is why we avoid it. Which is why Personal, we avoid it. Why I avoid it. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. But I think our culture promotes that. So it makes it easy for us to avoid. so easy. So the term multitasking, which is a big fat myth, by the way. (laughs) It was coined in the 1960s when the early computers were invented. That's such an interesting fact. It was what machines did. Oh, wow. But our human brains can only produce one or two thoughts in our conscious minds at once. That's never changed. That's never going to change. At least in our lifetimes or in our kids' lifetimes or in their kids' lifetimes. Our brains are the way they are. One or two things at a time. So this multi, we think we're doing several things at once, but we're actually doing this juggling and switching and and going back and forth from task to task. And you know, moms know this better than anybody on the planet. Oh, yeah. I totally, I remember having a conscious thought going, okay, your life now for the next 15 to 20 years is going to be a series of juggling tasks and multitasking. That is what you are going to have to do. Putting out fires. Yeah. Constant. Yeah. Like I just kind of embraced it. It's okay. (laughs) This is now the way you're living. Right. And I remember back then too thinking, we call it pregnancy brain or mommy brain. You remember? Oh yeah. (laughs) Where same thing that was happening now, loss of focus, where I can, couldn't keep a thought or you'd forget the diaper bag or you'd be, you know, you're trying to remember which papers am I supposed to sign tonight and who has what homework due and all the things that moms have to cram into their brains. Um, it's too much. You're you're not multitasking. You're going to drop the ball. Your wow. brain is not made to handle that. Yeah. Uh, Hewlett Packard did a study of workers and found that when they received emails and phone calls, their IQ actually dropped 10 points. That's <laughs> twice the amount you get if you smoked pot. So it's better to be stoned at work. <laughs> than you heard it here first, <laughs> ladies. Try to get all the emails. Yeah. So switching tasks like that makes you slower. It makes you make mistakes. It makes you less creative. And it decreases your memory of what you just did. That last one, for sure, I notice. Memory? Mm -hmm. Like we're decreasing my memory of what I did. Did I tell you that? Have I done that? (laughs) I don't remember doing that. Yes. It's slightly frightening. It is. And I, you and several other my friends are kind of like panic. Will you tell me if you notice that I'm like losing my brain? Because you you hear the increase of Alzheimer's and the increase of all this stuff. And and you try to put that label on yourself as this me. Is this what's happening? And I think it's just this focus fog that we're all in, Mm -hmm. which is related to our society and what it is. Interestingly, Bob, since we're doing this series on technology and we've been talking about it a lot in our house, he finally turned off all his notifications on his phone oh he did. so I can still continue to text him at 5 a.m and now he won't get I don't, I'm not sure of the texting oh, but he used to sorry, get Bobby. like um every single app you know you can go through oh, your thing right, and right. push notifications do you want and I always say no and he always says yes oh because I don't want to know right. apple news constantly all through the day right. or weather or whatever um so he was get like constant phone ding 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 so he turned it mm. off and I noticed like he was more present and more focused and it wasn't this constant glancing at a phone wow and he noticed he said he got to work the first day that he turned it off he got to work and he had this low-level anxiety that (sighs) immediately set in because he wasn't getting these pings constantly of something's going on and i'm not knowing about it so Mm. he he saved them all you can batch them okay so that you get them all at the end of the day when you have a time set aside and you can go through brilliant it is completely brilliant why are we not all doing why are we not so it changed his whole outlook and his ability to focus throughout the day. That's just one person's one example. So I think it's a- that's very cool because 
because I, yeah, again, these things, these phones we carry, they can be a tool for such good, but their default settings are to addict us. Look as at we me. said in look our first me. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I want my, I'm going to train you to want to look at me. Mm-hmm. That hit <laughs> yeah. of dopamine. It totally works. It does. So talk to me about flow states. This is really, really cool. It sounds so zen yoga flow <laughs> yeah. state well everybody uh in some way has experienced a flow state it's like when you get so involved in something that you lose track of time you probably do that when you're cooking absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely it's they call it a monotask one thing so it's meaningful and usually it's at the edge of your ability but not beyond it so you're stretching and pushing yourself just a little bit okay um and that a flow state is a real and deep form of attention and the more flow you experience the better you feel. So some people get it, a lot of people get it artistically. If you're playing the piano, you get lost in the music. If you're rock climbing and you solve the problem, um, writing, swimming, you just get so into it that you, wow, it's been an hour. Mm. I didn't realize the time. Mm -hmm. I I do that all the time. The time has gotten away from me and I forget to leave the house for something. Um, I bet you did that with reading a lot. Reading, writing, yeah, anything involving words. but. These states are super fragile and they're easily disrupted. So um, they did this experiment and they found that um, in the 80s, even way back then, staring at a screen is one of the activities that provides the lowest amount of flow. Really? So you think you lose, I know I lose track of time. I do lose track of time in front of Netflix. But it's not meaningful. Oh. So you don't feel better after it. You're right. <laughs> and I You're right. totally agree with that. So instead, if you can think about what you love, think what does that for you? Mm. And what puts you in that flow state? Is it gardening? Just digging in the garden outside or sitting on the dock of the bay, watching a sunset where you just, you know, life seems hmm. to just sort of slip away and you just think this is awesome. You need to find more of those. We need to find more of those flow states and make space for them. I got an email from I, I get regular emails from Trevin Wax. He's a writer for Gospel Coalition, and I, I just like the way he thinks. And one of his recent emails was um, how he um, creates space for reading throughout his day. So he just kind of went through his own personal day. So he creates space in the morning, he creates space at lunchtime, mm-hmm. and then he creates space in the evening. And because I'm always in awe of the amount of books that the man is reading. So he'll, he'll put at the bottom of his emails. Here's the four, you know, books I'm oh, reading. I'm like, how do you have time to do that? Well, he has four children, I think four, three or four children. So he, he is creating these spaces, which is way more than 65 seconds mm-hmm. of, or th- what was it? Three minutes for right. adults. You know, he's creating 20 minutes of space, 30 minutes of space, an hour of space. You know, when I think of the time I might spend watching cooking shows oh just the next one the next Uh, one I'm like I do have time to do a lot more things than I'm doing right but it is you're so tired yeah it just feels easy it is the easy thing not the important thing which is what we do so that there's a powerful path out of that distraction and loss of focus and that is finding flows so think about what that is for you okay maybe it's not watching a cooking show maybe it's actually cooking something for your friend that you need to take across town to her tonight for dinner hint hint (laughs) But oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Just kidding. <laughs> so another thing that um, loss of focus gives us, I mean, we hear this all the time. I'm so tired. Yeah. Is it chicken or the egg? 
we're we're tired, so we can't focus. Or okay. focusing makes us tired. We said that at the beginning. Focusing makes us tired. It does, but when you're constantly multitasking, mm-hmm. fake fake term, or uh, getting distracted, or having to refocus and refocus and refocus back to the task you were doing, it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I remember thinking this is so very unfulfilling to constantly switch tasks. When I'm talking about when my kids were like preschoolers, this is very unfulfilling. And there's just some of that you have to do. Yeah, life, it's survival. Yeah, it's just, that's just life. But you kind of, on the backside of mothering, I'm noticing I kind of even forgot the desire to do it, Mm. you know, that I originally had in my 20s. Like I, I knew the joy of, that flow state you're talking about Mm -hmm. and I think I I've except for the cooking example maybe I've let it kind of escape me the Mm. the benefit to that the beauty of that and I'm certainly not sleep deprived like most Americans not anymore yeah like like 40 percent of Americans are chronically sleep deprived the statistic said Mm -hmm. less than seven hours a night Mm -hmm. and over the past century the average child has lost about an hour and a half of sleep a night an hour and a half is huge yeah. In a is. life of a child. It is. And I, again, I think it's perspective as parents. When are we going to bed? Mm-hmm. And that's getting pushed back for children as well. Right. Our days are busier and busier. Mm-hmm. We've got more to cram into them. Oh, let's just slide bedtime another mm-hmm. another 30 minutes and another 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. But we know, refer to our sleep podcast <laughs> episode. That's that so good. Sleep deprivation effects are especially terrible in children. And while mm-hmm. adults get drowsy... Kids get hyperactive and they lose the ability to pay attention. You see that when, you know, your kid is overstimulated and overtired and you just, for crying out loud, all you need to do is close your eyes and go sleep. Yes. But they're running in circles, literally, not knowing what to do with themselves. Yes. We had um, Dottie last weekend and we were pushing it on her bedtime. We wanted to go to the Good Friday service at church and I asked Emma, is that okay? And she's like, yep, that's okay. Even though she usually goes to bed by 730, that'll go to 745 or 8, you know. She got so wiggly. She was like a little Tasmanian devil in my arms, spinning herself in circles. She was just so tired. Bless her. She was just like, what are you doing to me? Put me to bed. (laughs) so funny (laughs) that they react that way. They do. She was like literally flipping in my lap. Yeah. Yeah. They're poor little bodies. Your body treats lack of sleep as an emergency, Mm. which I totally get. (laughs) I feel that. It raises your blood pressure, makes you crave sugar. It cuts off all the memory making so that it can be ready for this emergency, which in reality is just that you stayed up too late on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It's not an emergency, but your body is in emergency mode all the time. Wow. And then it creates this vicious cycle. Yeah. And interesting fact, when we were researching for this episode, we're dreaming less. Right. Well, you get less sleep. You get less REM time. Mm Mm-hmm. And you dream less. Well, and dreaming, I just just find it so fascinating and so important like dreaming helps us adapt emotionally to things that happen when we're awake um you know and from my perspective with a christian worldview it's all throughout scripture god uses dreams in yeah. so many powerful ways in our lives isn't that interesting and i'm i'm missing out on it because you're setting myself up to it's fail. like the only time in your day that you're quiet and still yes. especially for for i think certain personalities like mine which is so concrete I'm, I'm such a concrete thinker. It's where God can get a hold of me mm-hmm. and be like, let's just raise your consciousness to the more possibilities here. Yeah. Let me let you peek behind the curtain. Here's what's going, really going on. Yes. And I need that because I am, I'm less apt to do that in my waking, waking hours. I think that's so interesting. So 
most of us in the world today. When we're awake, we're hurried, we're irritable, we're stressed because we haven't given our brains time to emotionally adapt. Mm -hmm. So what does that do to us as a society? What is that saying if we as a society are so frantic that we don't have time to dream? I think that's sad. It's very sad. It's kind of a, I mean, we don't have time to daydream. We don't have time to know what we would really love to do. We don't have time to dream and detox at night and kind of untangle the all the stuff that's happened during our day. I'm not sure that's great. No, it's not. It's not. And part of it is also this unnatural relationship we have with light. Oh, right. Tiffany talked about that in the sleep episode. Yeah, blue light, our rhythms of the day. Um you know, I know you can set your screens to not have that blue light that's messing up your brain chemistry saying mm-hmm. it's still daytime, but it's actually probably just better to not have your screen there. I know right. I started keeping my screen uh, by my bed in my 40s because I was waking up in the night and couldn't go back to sleep and couldn't go back to sleep. And I thought, oh, I can just read a book, you know, I'll right. just lay here and read a book with the backlit screen and on my Kindle. But then I just found it began to be like I wanted it there. I trained myself to want it there yeah and doing that experiment I tell you all to do with your kids take it away and see how they react I didn't like it I didn't want to take it away I felt a little bit of anxiety like what if I wake up and I don't right have it there yeah or you think what I gotta get the emergency call you know I gotta parents always have to be on call right just in case so the recommendation is no screens two hours before bed I don't know a night that I do that Bonnie um, not a single night me neither that's usually the last thing I do that's the I last thing I do before bed no screens it feels like little house on the prairie-ish right. to think of no screens two hours before bed that would be a tough one to let go of yeah because it's kind of our ritual but if like it will sit down it's our last thing we do if it would contribute to dreaming more or I don't know being able to shut down earlier and detox from all of that it would be an interesting experiment. I know. I we think should, we I should think do that. We for should a few have done days it before we did this and what recorded it. <laughs> Maybe we'll mention it later in our third one. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, and let's talk about sustained reading because this was this was one of the first clues personally that something had changed in my brain. Me too. The and okay, let's be honest. The proportion of Americans who read books for pleasure is at its lowest level. This makes me super sad. Oh, I know. Fifty-seven percent of Americans never read a book. In a single year? 57%. Yep. Oh, they're missing out. That, we were just talking about flow. Well, that is one of the simplest and most common forms of flow that people experience is reading a book. It helps us feel better and empathize with other people. It helps us focus better. So when we read a book, it's linear. We're going to focus on one thing at a time for a sustained period. A storyline, a plot line, characters Mm -hmm. are to be developed if it's fiction. Um, And when we read screens we're skipping and jumping and scanning and skimming so if you haven't read a book in a while and you try to you're going to find yourself doing that same thing you're going to skip and skim and fight the urge to jump ahead or it's taking too long to get to this next thought let's just go ahead a few a few pages even just a long article I'm a big article reader I love to do a lot of research from articles online and if it's a real long article I find myself scrolling to see how how, how long, long it is if it doesn't tell you at the beginning you know it's a 15 minute read or if it says it's a 20 minute read eh, I don't really want to do that See? right now and and since when did we have to have like warning labels on how long this is going to take mm-hmm. you to read 
that's an interesting thing in, a, in and of itself. Yeah. And if you happen to be writing articles for media outlets, oh, you so know, frustrating. they tell you, you've got to format it with so much white space and so many big, bold headlines to curate it for the reader because nobody will take the time. You can't have blocks of text longer than, you know, a few oh, sentences because readers yeah. don't have the attention span. And some things just cannot be condensed. I mean, I am all for E.B. White. What I love his, like, he has a little book on being a good writer. And one of his mantras is use fewer words. Yes, simplify. So good writers do use fewer words. But some things are complicated. Mm -hmm. And you cannot write an article in 500 words. Right. And explain what you're talking about. Exactly. And Not to get really, deep and real. Right. Yes. So, like, you know, um, in terms of, I do a lot of, like, theological writing. And I do a lot of writing on gender. Do you think I can distill the gender debate in 500 words? Yeah. No. Just bullet point it, Renee. What's right. the deal? So when we have these 6,000 word articles, you know, when I'm doing interviews with doctors mm -hmm. of theology, I, you know, it's two chapters of a book mm -hmm. is how long that article is. And they're, people are giving me feedback, Renee, people are just not reading it. It's too long. Can you make a version that's short? And I'm like, oh. well, yes, you can, but you're leaving out. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, ideas for dummies. You're leaving yeah. out. Everything cannot just be cliff notes. That's right. If everything, <laughs> then why do we have literature in the first place? If the whole world, if all we are capable of doing is just gleaning from the cliff notes, nobody's deep anymore. Nobody thinks anymore. Nobody can focus and dig down into cause and effect and, you know. Did you see recently, you would have freaked out if you saw it, so I don't think you did, that there's some um, English teachers in our schools that are saying, you know, all this focus on reading and writing it's it's really too much like we need to just chill out on that forget perfecting your reading programs forget on creating great writers we need to to move from this I'm assuming they're talking about just moving to audio or video oh no wow wow I I hope not I hope not I have seen articles from more than one college professor lately I haven't seen that Please, please let that not be our future. Um, that talks about students' inability to read and digest and think about information. So mm -hmm. they grab the loudest nuggets. Um, my husband just taught a graduate class at a university. And part of the graduate class, you think at a level like that, you know, you could, here's all these papers. You go learn, you go learn from them and come back and tell me what you've read. And it was extremely difficult for them to do that um, because they learned to grab the loudest nuggets and just regurgitate them they don't know how to actually in-depth research now what does that mean for our future doctors our future scientists politicians the people that we're relying on people for who our we health choose to help govern us ah! yeah what does that mean for our culture um at harvard university which you think okay gold standard ivy league best of the best one professor said he struggled so hard to get his students to read even quite short books and increasingly offered them podcasts and youtube clips that they could watch instead that's just not getting the job done. No. Like you said, we, we, there's only so much you can communicate in those forums. Mm -hmm. It's wow. not. It's not the same thing. I mean, and I even notice when I, so I've been doing um, a 10-month program that's been required a lot of in-depth reading. I'm much better at this right now, at this season of my life, because it's required mm -hmm. out of me. But when I have video content, I want to also be cooking. <laughs> I put my laptop in there. Yes. I'm like, I don't want to just sit and yes. watch. I feel like antsy if I'm just sitting and watching the speaker for an hour and a half. And that's that's what they are. They're mostly quite long 
Me too. Video sessions. Well, I think that's why the Rise and, you see the Rise in podcasts. Because you can mm. listen to a podcast and run and right. drive around and do whatever task you're doing. Yeah. Because people don't want to sit there. I don't sit and just listen to a podcast. Mm-mm. I'm always doing something else. We appreciate you listening to this podcast while you're doing something else, <laughs> Thank <moms>. you. <laughs> Thank you. So I thought it was an interesting statement in the book. Like, what does the medium where we get our information tell us about the world? So if you're only, if you're never reading a book and you're only getting your information from Twitter, then your understanding of the world is that we should be understood in short, simple statements of what, 260 characters or less. We, we should be able to interpret the world confidently and quickly. Yeah, or Facebook, where your life is displayed, and here's what friendship means. That's what, yeah, if you're only looking at Facebook. All the beautiful curated photos. Uh-huh. Instagram is telling you what matters is how you look on the outside and whether people like that. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, my, I was talking to my kids yesterday, and they both just stopped to take a picture. And I'm like, what are you doing? Are you taking a picture? Like, let me pose if you're taking a picture. They're like, no, it's this app called Get Real. And you're supposed to, it reminds you, it sets a reminder, and you're supposed to take a picture right then of what you're doing. Not curated, not the beautiful. I thought, well, there, there is, that's still instant quick yes. information, but there's an attempt. Their finger is on the pulse of this that you're describing. To not curate it to and not filter curate it. your life. Let's just uh-huh. be real. Here's what real life is. I thought that was interesting. Oh, that is interesting, but it's doing it through it's still doing quick that app. ironically through <laughs> yes and you scroll through and look at everybody's real life <laughs> That's app. right oh me oh me so but a book is telling you something different a book will tell you okay life is complex you cannot distill like you said your article nothing not everything can be distilled into 280 characters no you have to slow down and think deeply about it life is worth thinking about and it's worth thinking about how others live and think that's what that's when you get information from a book that's what you're filtering it through so I mean, I'll, I'm all for that. It's no surprise, but. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're likely one of those moms, maybe dads, who is wanting to think about, is what I'm doing, is the way the world is working right now the best way, is what I'm doing the best way. And I just encourage you to to think about that as we walk through these conversations. I just want to give you a virtual high five. Good yeah. job for thinking about it. Even just thinking about it and questioning. Yep. You know, it's just best practices. Because I do, like, I've done so much reading of nonfiction for these last 10 months in this program I'm in. I'm so excited. One of the things I'm most excited is to get back into a novel. It's going to feel so different. Just get lost in a novel. And so it's just such a beautiful gift you can give yourself. And you can travel anywhere with a book. Mm-hmm. It's really true. I mean, it sounds so trite. But it's really powerful to help you understand imagination other cultures like you said the empathy for other people Mm -hmm. um it you know we we just we did so much reading about other cultures and other people with our children homeschooling and it was one of my favorite things I really did feel like we traveled there in some ways yeah all those books I made you read in book group about Russia and India yes (laughs) yes true they it's about the war books i don't want to know what it's like to be in war anymore bonnie <laughs> enough of that all right all right <laughs> well tristan harris a former google engineer who appeared on netflix's uh, social dilemma was fascinated by magicians as a kid and as you know magic is all about limits of attention so we think that we control our attention and if someone messes with it we're gonna know 
we will be able to spot it and we can resist it. Um, but magicians have long used that. They know that. And they've used that false feeling we have to amaze and astound us. They don't even have to know our strengths. They just have to know our weaknesses. So that's how they perform these feats of illusion. Mm-hmm. Is we think, we know, we're looking so hard. I'm going to spot it. I'm going to see how they do that magic trick. And you never do. No, you never do. Not with the really good ones. Yeah. Well, and the it- really good magicians are <laughs> the people who have engineered our tech. Mm-hmm. So if you watch Social Dilemma, which I only got halfway through that, it freaked me out. It's so, so good. I think it's... I got to say, I chickened out on the last half of it. I should go back. Um, the testimonies of the creators of Twitter, Instagram, and all the rest say that these platforms are our modern day magicians, making us think that we have control when we're actually just puppets turned whichever way they want us using their proven manipulation methods. And what are their methods for, Bonnie? It's just to make money. I mean, it's, it's America. Good. It's America. <laughs> right. And, you know, we all say it's, it's not that they're listening to us and targeting us with ads. It's that their model of you is so accurate. It's making predictions about you that you just think, that's like magic. How could they know that about me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they know. Every day, the combined total of 200,000 human lifetimes, that's every moment from birth to death, is now spent scrolling through a screen. This is a systemic attention problem that requires systemic solutions. No kidding. Yeah. It is. And we talked about that in our last episode about how we all need to band together and like we can collectively decide as communities. We're not going to have screens for our kids. Let's support one another through this. Yeah. And like you, okay, for this next week, we're not going to look at our phones two hours before we go to bed or whatever. Be Make a pact with a friend. Be accountable. Absolutely. Dr. Nadine Harris, who's the Surgeon General of California, um, she was taking a look at hypervigilance in kids and adverse childhood experiences, which we've talked about before on here. And she said children who experienced four or more ACEs were 32 times more likely to have been diagnosed with attention or behavior problems. No surprise. Because they're always looking for that bear, um, the bear in the bushes. Like they're always on hyper alert instead of being able to focus in school. If you come from a a violent neighborhood or a child home of of abuse or trauma, that kind of thing, you're always kind of on edge, nervous, looking for the bear. Um, And ACEs will triple the development of ADHD symptoms. Wow. So to be able to, teachers know this in schools, if you pay, to pay attention in a normal way, you need to feel safe. You, to be able to learn, you need to feel safe. And if you have selective attention in a dangerous environment, well, that's dumb. Right. <laughs> you might, that's, that's you how might you die. die. Yeah, that's yeah. how you die. You got to constantly scan your environment for that for that danger. So you're, a kid's body in that circumstance is making too many stress hormones and decreasing their ability to focus. I think that we also need to just recognize, you know, certain stages of parenting are extremely stressful. Or if your marriage is in a season that's mm. extremely stressful, that... Um, as adults, we also are feeling this way. Sure. That we're kind of hypervigilant. We feel this um, generalized anxiety because things are not as they should be. Or we're waiting for the next shoe to drop. Or we feel despair, like things are never going to get better. I mean, I felt that way being sleep deprived. Yeah. You know, as a young mom. It's like all know. these things we've talked about pile on top. Yes. So there are seasons of life that are um, stressful and we could recognize that. What, what we're talking about with children and aces is this 
it's not resolved. That stress is not getting resolved. It's not a few months or a few weeks. It's just month in and month out. And it, and it harms, it harms us. Yeah. It rewires our brains, which good news as teenagers, it can get rewired Mm -hmm. positively. If you make changes, kids are very resilient, but it's, it's a thing. It is. It's just worth recognizing and saying, hey, that's really hard. Yeah, I think I think people are starting to, scientists, doctors, physicians are starting to recognize now with the advent of um, more and more focus on ACEs and things like that, but also just your normal, you know, awesome family, awesome neighborhood, all the great things. Those kids are having overwhelm too. It's like an undeclared war on childhood. They're not they're not in an actual war. They're not ostensibly abused or anything, but they're having this continual overwhelm reaction because of too much stimulation. Mm-hmm. There's too much, too soon. There's too sexy, too young. All this stuff is creating this cumulative stress with just the pace of life. Mm-hmm. So um, if we can decrease that in them, then, then let's do it. Yes, yeah. And so when a child, back to your original point, when a child who has these adverse childhood events mm-hmm. or experiences, you know, presents with, say, ADHD, they'll treat them. They'll treat the symptom. With Ritalin or, you know, Stratera or some other, you know, kind of drug. But that doesn't actually treat the root. No. Of the reason they're having that. You know, that that um, sexual assault still happened or the violence in the home is still occurring right or the yelling or the financial crisis or a serious illness or death right. or divorce that's still happened and yeah Ritland's not gonna it's cure not that gonna cure all that yeah yeah um so if there's that kind of stress in your life of course your focus is going to be off of course it is mm-hmm. and and we're all saying I mean some kids have way more stress than others but all kids now have mm-hmm. some level of stress and mm-hmm. adults too yeah. And then there's food, mm-hmm. which also affects our focus. Yep. This cool Dutch study in 2009 took 27 kids that were having trouble focusing. So 15 of them had an elimination diet, no preservatives, no additives, no dyes. The other 12 ate their usual food. Okay. More than 70% on the elimination diet improved their attention by an average of 50%. That's a huge, huge result. Huge result. And I got to say, as a young mom, I thought that was bunk. You know, moms would say, oh, my kid had red dye and they were so... I'm like, you're just being a bad mom. Mm. You're just like blaming your lazy parenting on food dye. Right. Well, we know that it affects some kids more than others. Well, I didn't. (laughs) Now we do. (laughs) I do now. But I mean, I believe it. Yeah. Wow. All that junk in our food. Yeah. Well, when you eat what we're evolved to eat, clearly our brains function better. And if you look across the world, this goes right into your series on food that we did. Yeah. At the places where people are more physically and mentally fit than Americans are, they have lower levels of dementia, lower levels of ADHD, and they're all eating whole whole foods. They're yeah. all chopping those carrots slowly and making real stuff, and they're not shopping around the middle of the grocery store. That's right. They're shopping the edges of the grocery store. So our culture is so individualistic that we're pushed to see our problems as individual failings. 
You can't focus. Are you overweight? Are you poor? The message is it's your fault. I mean, that's what I just said I was saying to people. It's your fault. Uh huh. Which, you know, if I'm saying it to someone else, I'm saying it to myself about something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your fault. You should have found a way to lift yourself up and out of that situation. But these are systemic. This is the way our world is working. Right. This is the food we have. This is the technology we have. Yeah. This is the pollution that we have in our air and our water and all the things that we're not controlling. We just are all swimming right along in it. That's right. So it's not all of our faults. It's our focus. It's not that we're lazy or undisciplined or, uh, you know, not rigorous enough. Some of it is being done to us. Right. Um, so I wanted to touch a little more on ADHD. Um, because, it okay, it seems like like every other kid I meet is diagnosed with this. Yeah. I mean, a ton. And all it means... It's not even really a diagnosis. It's it's a, a group of behaviors. Okay. It's just a group of attention behaviors. So you're right. I never saw this when we were raising our kids. No. Or when I was young. Certainly not when I was young. It started to when we were raising our kids. My friends who were teachers were like desperate to get their students on uh, Ritalin or some other stimulant mm-hmm. just because they couldn't run their classroom. You know, it was just so disruptive. But the numbers, like, I, I just... The numbers are staggering. It's weird to me. The numbers are... They just doesn't seem real. What are the numbers? Yeah. But just between 2003 and 2011, in the United States, it has increased by 43%. 55% in girls. That's, that's an epidemic. And it has now reached the point that 13% of adolescents in the U.S. are said to have ADHD. And for some reason, weirdly, in parts of the South, 30% of boys are now said to have ADHD by the time they turn 18. And the majority of all those people, all those kids, are given stimulants to control it. Um, they're, and they're not making it up or faking it. It's not some fake disease or fake diagnosis. They're children really struggling to focus. They're really having behavior problems. It's not... Um, a fad, I guess. And it's not their fault. Most experts believe that for some children, there can there can be a biological component. Okay, so for being in the homeschool community, I was in the world of where people did not medicate. Like that was, they were very averse to medicating for ADHD. Uh-huh. And they, because they were just in their home with a small number of children, even if it was all siblings, you know, it's still smaller than an average classroom if you have five, six, seven siblings. And so they they wanted to not medicate, at least like in the elementary years, to just see if they could grow out of it. Is this just like a self-control thing? And my child doesn't want to sit on their bottom, you know. And a lot of times you would see, like by the time they reached high school, they did have the self-control. And then there were the ones that didn't. You know, there were the ones that were like, whoa, okay, seriously. Right. We need some intervention here. But I thought that was just interesting. I kind of rolled my eyes at it at the time. I did a lot of eye rolling in my younger years. <laughs> Are you reformed? <laughs> Somewhat. <laughs> but I mean, I thought, oh, that, you know, nobody wants to take any medicine. You don't even want to take an Advil. Like, go take some medicine if you need medicine. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I appreciate the fact that they wanted to maybe adapt their environment for childhood. Sure. 
for, you know, for the attention span of a child and to be able to let them go out and play in between subjects. I mean, we did that. Mm -hmm. We let Mm -hmm. our kids go run and play between subjects in the elementary years. And so I felt like, you know, that maybe, yes, there were these kids that had ADHD, but it was more like what you're describing that um, the doctor said that it was just a collection of behaviors. Right. That we're seeing. And then we're just naming it that. Exactly. And, and so, those are just sometimes associated with being a kid. They are. But but a lot of times they're also associated with um, this unnaturally stress-ridden environment. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you have a whole lot of high stress in your home, but just that we live in a, a world that it's like stress soup. Mm-hmm. Overstimulation and too much information and busyness and all of the yeah. stuff that we didn't used to have, we now just have it as a matter of course. So it's going to produce behavior issues. And I thought one of the most fascinating things in this book was, and I let my husband read it, who's a veterinarian, he had not heard this before, was this veterinarian um, was giving this woman came in with this beagle who she could not leave alone it was going insane in the house it was tearing everything up a lot of dogs have this issue um but this was to like a crazy extent so the veterinarian said well we're just gonna try um (laughs) we're we're gonna give it ritalin because that sounds like uh, you know a stimulant might be able to fix that sure enough fix the problem Beagle went back back down to regular behavior. He was pleasant to be around, all the things. So the vet started doing that in lots of areas like this. Um, there's a thing that horses do if they're in their stall a whole lot. They bite onto the edge of the stall door and they kind of suck in air. It's really mm. bad for them. And it's a really bad, annoying habit. And once they start it, it's really hard to stop it. And polar bears at the zoo who just circle and circle and circle in their, in their tanks, um, things like that. Well, the thing that all of these animals had in common is that they're being, they're in environments that they're not meant to be in. Like the horse is meant to be out in the field grazing constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, The polar bear is meant to be swimming in a large, large area Mm -hmm. constantly. Uh, The beagle is meant to have packs and to ride, you know, all the things. Well, kids are too. So the vet was just saying, well, this is the, this is what we have. This is what we're dealing with. This is what we got to work with. And so we're going to have to give a medication to deal with wow. it. And it's the same thing with our kids. This is what we have. This is what we have to work with. This is the world we live in. It's They're like polar bears in a tank. Oh, Which are so the, the parents who were adapting the environments were doing what the vet would say. I think so. Like, let's just, let's just create this different environment for schooling, which is the bulk of your day. And let's see if we can manage these symptoms. Yeah. Let wow. them go out and run and play. Let them go out and not look at screens. Let them go out and read a book and imagine and build forts and be creative and work out problems, hmm. that kind of thing, rather than be busy and indoors all the time and all that stuff. It really does affect their <laughs> behaviors, their brains at every level. I I think if we're not paying attention to that, like like shake it off and look around is how I feel. Wow. Wow. Um, so important. Oh, my goodness. I'm just <laughs> having a moment here. Like, yeah, what, you know, so my, if I was a young mom raising children, I would be asking myself, so what can I do? Mm-hmm. So what can I do to create the best environments that I can? Right. The most, the, the most natural environment for my family to thrive. Well, look at the food you're feeding your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, 
take out all the processed junk and all that garbage if you possibly can. Go outside Mm -hmm. multiple times a day, whatever the weather. (laughs) Run around, you know, um, as much as possible have unsupervised play where you can have imagination, um, interactions and problem solving with nature and other kids. Minimize the news coming into your home. Minimize your own exposure to it. And then if our last episode we said, and it's a radical statement, but no screens before you're 10. Yeah. Yeah. None. If you can possibly manage that at all, no screens before you're 10. I think that would be a huge one. And then just like dial back your busyness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. All of those things I think would have a huge... And sleep. Yeah. Sleep more. And sleep more. Don't we all want that? Yes. Gosh, what, what mom doesn't want that? Yes. So, you know, we've said it before in an episode, you know, you, you know, as an adult, you actually have more control than you tell yourself sometimes. Everything can go on the table and you can slide stuff completely off. Mm-hmm. You can minimize its space in your life. You can get rid of it. You can amplify the things that you want more of. Like you have a lot more volition than you think. And, and so I would, I would just embrace that. Yeah. Celebrate that. I mean, a lot of times that feels heavy. Mm-hmm adulting <laughs> feels heavy but I would embrace the power that you have to, uh, yeah, to, so much of it we do to ourselves yeah to, to make that change mm-hmm. right so yeah you said one of the things you would do would be go outside multiple times a day for sure like in the United States 73% of elementary schools today have any form of recess they they don't they don't anymore 73% don't have recess no they do 73% do do okay 73% do so that's a quarter of them that don't right and 10% of children spend any time playing outdoors on a regular basis. That's from 2003. I know that's gone down. 10% of children on a regular basis. That's, I, that's terrible. It's so, so terrible. And if you look at Finland, which is one of the, it's always judged as the most happiest country on earth and the, you know, friendliest country on earth and the most successful schools in the world. They don't go to school at all until age seven. Not at all. And before then, they just play. I love that. I do too. I just, I love it. I think it's beautiful in so many ways. From, and then from 7 to 16, yeah. they have school from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. They have almost no homework and they take almost no tests. And then just like you said, after 45 minutes of instruction, they get 15 minutes of play mm-hmm. all throughout that 9 to 2 time. Yeah, because they're following the, the studies. I mean, it just shows, I mean, I'm trying to talk to high school students and like students headed to college and going, you know, don't waste your time mm-hmm. studying three hours at a stretch. Just don't, it's a waste. Right. Do, not- do 45 minutes, take a break. Right. And coincidentally, 0.1% of kids in Finland are diagnosed with ADHD. So that cannot be a genetic anomaly right. that Finland has, <laughs> yes, has these children who don't get ADHD and we all do. Magically prone to, yes, for which, sure. Which is uh, reminding me of a chapter from a book that's that's um, also about this topic. It's called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. It's by Cal Newport. He's great, great, great author. Love him. I used him a lot with my high school students. He has a chapter on embracing boredom, which I think is, a, oh, which is this play and allowing your kids to be bored. He just says, you know, deep work, his idea of deep work, deep work is like your flow, your yeah. flow idea. So our ability to concentrate intensely 
is a skill that must be trained. Mm-hmm. It's a muscle that we have to learn to work. Mm-hmm. But he says in his experience, I'll just read a quote from the chapter. He says, it's common to treat undistracted concentration as a habit like flossing. Something you know how to do and know it's good for you, but you've been neglecting due to lack of motivation. (laughs) So he says, this mindset is appealing because it implies you can transform your working life from distracted to focused overnight if you just simply muster enough motivation. But he says, this ignores the difficulty of focus and the hours of practice necessary to strengthen your mental muscle. He says, commitment to training this ability requires the long view. Efforts to deepen your focus will struggle if you don't simultaneously wean your mind from a dependence on distraction. Much in the same way that athletes take care of their bodies outside of their training sessions, you'll struggle to achieve the deepest levels of concentration if you spend the rest of your time fleeing the slightest hint of boredom. We have to allow ourselves to be bored. And he says, you know, don't flip your thinking. Don't take breaks from distraction take breaks from focus like have your goal be to like deeply focus on things and the distraction is the minimal amount of your time that's it's so great well and it's also encouraging because it tells you you can if you feel unfocused if you feel foggy and stressed and sleep deprived and all the things that you can train yourself it is very hopeful to go back yeah to the way you were meant to be so he talks about like scheduling um internet fasts Yep. Really putting boundaries around your internet use, which I've committed as I was driving home this morning from an early morning group meeting. I was thinking, I got to do that again. I got to have um, blocks of time during the day where I don't touch my phone. Mm-hmm. I just don't touch it. And I can make David able to call through. Right. <laughs> that, you know, the focus setting on the phone and all that. But I'm just, we don't get beyond that. We don't, we don't, we're always in danger because of the gravity of our culture is distraction and constant flow of information. We don't ever get beyond the need to do those kinds of things, I mm-hmm. think. To cultivate the focus, to put the boundary markers. Um, when I do a fast from my phone or internet, I feel so refreshed. Right. You go on a so vacation good. where you don't have service yes. or you do something like that. It's I mean, amazing. I totally fasted from social media yeah. for weeks at a time. And I go back to it and go, I'm just going to look at that one time in the morning, 10 minutes. It's just great. No. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, maybe the first week I did that. And then it's like morning and evening. And then it's morning and in the parking lot and in the sure. evening. And mm-hmm. then it's when the commercials come on for TV. I want to grab it. and Ah. Yeah. And there I am right back again. Yeah. Refusing to let myself be bored for even a minute <laughs> in the checkout line at the grocery. Because or- it's, I think it's the novelty itself that is so addicting. It's the new. Yeah. You know? And our world is... Um, especially for our kids uh the novelty is so fast with our technology and when you're in nature well that's novelty too but it's a lot slower a lot slower and i think that's what their brains need is the slow novelty like you said they're wired for wonder but it needs to be slow discovery yes he also has this concept of productive meditation in his chapter on embracing boredom And he talks about taking a period of time in which you're occupied physically, but not mentally, like walking, jogging, driving, showering, where you focus your attention on a single, well-defined problem. So you're just giving yourself space to focus on that one problem. 
He says you might even schedule a walk during your workday specifically for the purpose of applying productive meditation to the problem you're trying to solve. So by forcing you to resist distraction and return your attention repeatedly to a well-defined problem, it helps strengthen your distraction-resisting muscles. And by forcing you to push your focus deeper and deeper on a single problem, it sharpens your concentration. So he said it took him about a dozen sessions to experience some success with this. So don't give up quickly. But I thought that was interesting. I, I have noticed this does work for me. If I'm just cooking, like we've talked about before, where I'm just chopping vegetables and focusing on a problem or walking, there was a real stressful time in our marriage where David and I, in the mornings, we just walked and discussed a particular problem that was going on in our lives right then. It was really, really helpful. So, yeah, we're just so focus-deprived Um that just these small changes can make such a big difference. I was talking to our neuroscientist friend, Tiffany, after our last episode. And I said, do you, like, how did you do screens? Because you know all this stuff that we read in that book. You already knew it. And she said, oh, we absolutely did no screens. Like, when we, we refused. There was no screens. And now that her kids are older, she said the only type of app we allow is um, slow-moving apps. So she said we have like a Bible trivia, which a question pops up on the screen and we interact and talk about the answer. And then you can click, you know, on your answer. So she said even um, the videos that she would allow her child to watch, um, studies show that if you interact with your child while they're watching, so if it's slow enough pace where you can turn and speak a sentence or two to each other and then turn back, she said that's less harmful than those fast paced, like her, her, one was like we were never going to watch Spongebob Squarepants she's like which I hated anyway because I thought it was so gross and disrespectful it's just grates on my nerves but she said that pace she said we were we were that was kind of our bar for we were avoiding that and then going for the slow that's yeah so take your cue from the neuroscientist take mom take your cue from the neuroscientist mom who refuses to let her kids that's interesting do any of that fast paced stuff because she knows it's doing that dopamine tickle we mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. last time mm-hmm. she didn't want them doing that Yeah. So one of the last points that um, Hari makes in this book is uh, James Williams, who is a former Google strategist, puts it this way. He says, our attention comes in three different forms. The first one is a spotlight. And that's where you focus on your immediate actions. Like, I want to find my glasses. So I'm going to walk into this other room and look for my glasses. It's like a pointed, direct, um, narrow focus. If you're distracted... You're prevented from finishing these actions. Like, you know, you walk into the room to get your glasses and why was I in here again? Why do you got to be meddling, Bonnie? Why did I come in here? Yeah. Goodness. So that's your spotlight. That's the first one. The second one is your starlight. And that applies to longer term goals. It's projects over time. So say you want to write a book or you want to start a business or you want to be a good parent. When you're lost, you look up to the stars and you remember your direction. So these are a little bit longer term goals. If you're distracted and your focus isn't there, you're going to forget where you're headed. Then our third focus is even bigger than that. It's daylight. It makes you po- makes it possible for you to know what your long-term goals are in the first place. Well, how do you know you want to write a book and how do you know what it means to be a good parent? If you don't have time to reflect 
and think clearly and deeply, you're not going to be able to figure those out. You're losing your daylight. And it's basically you can't figure out who you are, what you wanted to do, or where you wanted to go. Losing our daylight is the deepest form of distraction. We become obsessed with these urgent things that we talked about earlier. We get lost in these petty goals um, or are depending on these simple signals from the outside world, like retweets. Likes. Likes, yes. (laughs) You can only find your daylight and your starlight if you have sustained periods of reflection, mind-wandering, and deep thought. So Williams believes that our attention crisis is depriving us of all three forms of focus, and we are literally losing our light. And I thought when I read that, I just had to stop. I almost got emotional about it Mm. and put the book down because I thought, what does it say about us as a culture that we are losing our light? Mm. What kind of a spiritual metaphor is that? Yeah, I mean, you're making me remember... Uh, was it Alexander the Great who hired a servant to look him in the eye every day yeah. and say, Alexander, one day you will die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sobering. It, that's the kind of, it's it's not morbid. It's it's focusing. Focusing. That's daylight. Right. That's like, what do you want to do with the time you've been given mm-hmm. on this earth? The older I get, the more I love a good funeral. And by good funeral, I mean a funeral... A Christian funeral where the family talks about a life well lived with mm-hmm. all these beautiful stories and reflections on the person. And you learn all these cool things that you never yeah. knew. You have your one little point of interaction with them, but you didn't know all these other beautiful things about their life. And it's just a time to stop and go, you know what? What do I want people to say about my life? What would they say mm-hmm. right now about my life if I died tomorrow or if I died today? I, I, I need those moments of daylight and starlight to really help me live well. We all do. We all do. Is that what we want people to say about us? Is that, well, she really knew how to scroll through Instagram. She had so many likes on that post. Remember that post that was so popular? <laughs> Who is going to care? Who is going to care? Oh, my goodness. That's, yeah, that's the sad part. And when you lose your focus, those big focus things, the deep things of our life, then what are we doing here? Uh, So I just loved the book. I really want to recommend it. It's called Stolen Focus. I recommend that you read it and I recommend that you read Glow Kids. Look, we're recommending that you read books, which cause you to focus deeply. (laughs) There's also Audible. You can listen to it (laughs) while you drive. If you have a hard time, yes. (laughs) Or if you have small children that preclude you doing anything other than what they need. But yeah, so and just ask yourself, what deliberate and intentional actions can you take to set limits on yourself or for your family? Be accountable to someone else. This is a great couch time discussion, date night discussion. Discuss it with your husband. You know, turn off your notifications like Bobby did. Yep. Set screen limits for social media. And I know, I know um, a couple of friends in business who do batch their emails. And they check their email at like 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. That's it. Super efficient. Actually right. way more clearing mm-hmm. for the brain. Read a book. Yep. Keep exercising that reflective and deep thinking muscle that Renee was talking about it. And for kids, limit screens or don't allow them at all before age 10. Do what our friend Tiffany did. And if you're going to do that, make it slow. Slow. That's right. And limited. Mm -hmm. Give them books. Give them lots of free time. And sleep. 
Go to bed earlier. Who doesn't want to do that? So we're going to have uh, this resource listed on our website, along with the book that Renee mentioned, Deep Work, uh, justaskyourmom.com. You can find us on Facebook, Just Ask Your Mom, or at Instagram, Just Ask Your Mom Podcast. And we'd love for you to rate us and leave a review if you're listening. And better yet, subscribe. So you'll get an episode every Monday morning. And go to our website to the Get Featured button and do this closing so we don't have to do it ourselves. We love to hear from you and your cute kids. Yeah. And send us your questions and topic suggestions to Just Ask Your Mom Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on Just, Just Ask, Ask Your Mom. Mom.